I once watched, as someone illustrated Isaiah's visions and prophecies, by drawing him as a stick figure, then drawing a telescope in front of his face, which indicated that Isaiah could see both what was really close at hand, but also what was coming in the near future, for him 150 years away, and the distant future, our day. In our study this week, we dive into what scholars often call Second Isaiah, because his focus seems to shift to the future. While some contend that this shift indicates a different author writing at a later time, many others, including our own Book of Mormon prophets, knew Isaiah to be visionary and blessed with the Spirit of God. So what happens then when you take a telescopic prophet and combine it with a microscopic lens? In our episode this week, we look deep at a few aspects of Isaiah's writings that have powerful and immediate impact for us. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey everyone, welcome to our study this week, Isaiah chapters 40 through 49. Um, I want to start by making a joke that I could only make with Krista not being with me. And by the way, the only reason she's not is because the last couple of weeks we have been in the throes of getting ready for and starting school for our kids. And so our time has been very limited. And so we've had to kind of divide and conquer. She'll be back in a couple of episodes. But I could never say this uh, if she were with me. Um, Did you know that Nephi had Facebook? And if you need proof, you go to 1 Nephi 19.23 which says, about halfway through the verse, I did read unto them, meaning his brothers, that which was written by the prophet Isaiah, for I did liken all scriptures unto us. Get it? Nephi likened, liked Facebook. Okay, that's that's not even funny to me. But it is very true that Nephi liked Isaiah, even though that's not what the word liken means. Uh, He really, really liked Isaiah. Specifically, he liked these chapters of Isaiah. Notice in chapter 20 in 1 Nephi, in chapter 21, he he quotes chapters 48 and 49 of Isaiah. And part of the reason Nephi loved Isaiah so much is because, as I think we've mentioned in a previous episode, uh, for Nephi, Isaiah was his Joseph Smith. He lived uh, up to almost 200 years before him. And so Nephi probably grew up hearing and maybe even reading the prophecies of Isaiah, especially because Isaiah's prophecies that he made uh, almost 200 years before the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the conquering of Judah, Nephi is living in the days where that's going to happen. So as his father Lehi starts to prophesy that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, all he's doing is saying, hey, remember 150 years ago, Isaiah told us that Judah would be destroyed by Babylon if we didn't repent. We haven't, therefore we're going to be destroyed. So Isaiah's, or Nephi is living in the time when the prophecies of Isaiah are being fulfilled. Very similar to us living in the time when many of the things that Joseph Smith prophesied are coming true. And so Nephi loves Isaiah and loves these chapters. And as you study them, you will love them too. Um, These are not chapters that need a whole lot of 
uh, help in order to really love. The first 35 or so chapters, 38 chapters of Isaiah are all uh, poetic, and it takes some effort to kind of sift through the language and and find the pearls of Christ-centered and relevant truths that we found the last couple of weeks in our study. But in these sections, there's not as much that the imagery isn't as thick, the poet poetry isn't as difficult to decipher, and it's really just rich with powerful, beautiful language. Uh, the first 40 chapters, Isaiah is focusing on a lot of what's going wrong in his in Judah or what has gone wrong in Israel and the potential threats that are coming. In these chapters, he looks forward to the day when uh, things will begin to go right again. So you don't really need a whole lot of help to study these chapters. However, a couple days ago was my son's birthday and one of his birthday presents, uh, I got him a pocket microscope, which I didn't know existed, but it's a little pocket microscope that you can take around and if you hold it up to something, it works just like a microphone. So you can put it down on a piece of paper and zoom in anywhere between 60 and 120 times magnification. And you can see, um, like I put it on a cookie the other day and I could see the individual like crystals of sugar. It was fascinating. So what I want to do in this episode is I want to give you some lenses through which these wonderful chapters of Isaiah become even richer and deeper. So that as you use maybe one or two of these different lenses, you can find things that aren't necessarily just right on the surface or if they are on the surface, something you can uh, dive deeper into. So first, a 30 times magnification. This one's a pretty easy one because it's right in front. If you go to the first word in Isaiah chapter 40, the word is repeated twice. In Hebrew, there's not the ye that's there. So it's just the same Hebrew word repeated twice. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Again, a dramatic shift in tone from the previous chapters. The word in Hebrew, Naham, uh, has a beautiful um, kind of imagery that goes with it. It means literally to sigh or breathe deeply. And after everything that we have studied in the last couple of chapters, after everything we have kind of waded through with the potential destruction, it's nice to have a place where we can sigh or breathe deeply. It also connotes or implies sorrow pity, or of course, comfort. In other words, this is a place where the Lord says, I feel for what you have gone through. Even though what you have gone through was largely due to you turning away from me, I have pity, I have sorrow, uh, and I want to uh, provide comfort for you as Israel. Um, This word, Nacham, is repeated at the end of our study this week, so it proves kind of a fitting bookend in 49 verse 13. It says, sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. And so if you want a really simple but beautiful lens to use to look at these chapters of Isaiah, you might use this Naham lens, this comfort lens. And just look for verses that are comforting to you. For example, some of the ones that are really easy to find that are really well known. Isaiah 41.10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. 
Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. The beautiful verse that provides a lot of uh, just comfort. Um, Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And then just one more. Chapter 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And though the rivers and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Now, one note to just pay attention to is in each of those comforting verses, if you read them quickly, um, it could convey the mistaken idea that the way the Lord provides comfort is by protecting us from harm. We have had in the story of Isaiah chapters and chapters where the people suffered consequences, and now God is going to step in and comfort his people by protecting them from future trials and difficulties. Well, historically, we know that isn't true. Um, The captivity of Israel uh, as a a unified nation— Uh, begins hundreds of years before Christ and exists for thousands of years after Christ. And so uh, there's not an end to the trials and difficulties. Notice in each one of those verses, the Lord does not promise to remove or prevent trials, but rather to sustain them through trials. Right? Isaiah 41.10, I will strengthen thee, I will uphold thee, but I'm not going to remove you from the difficulties that you might need to go through. Chapter 42, my servant whom I uphold, meaning I'm holding you up, but you're the one that has to go through things. Uh, Chapter 43, verse 2, when you pass through waters and rivers and fire, I will be with you and I'll prevent you from being burned or destroyed, but I am not going to stop you from walking through those fires and rivers and difficulties. Now, One way to put this that I think, I I hope I don't destroy uh, anyone's favorite poem, but there's a really well-known story slash poem of Footprints in the Sand. And if you've never heard the story, you probably have, but if you've never heard of it, the story is um, roughly, I'm walking along a beach. I dreamed I'm walking along the beach and uh, I'm walking together with the Lord. And as I look back, I see that there are two sets of footprints in the sand. But then, as I see the moments in my life that were the hardest and the most difficult, I noticed that there was only one set of footprints in the sand. And I asked the Lord, why is it in those moments you abandoned me? And the Lord replies, it's, I didn't abandon you in those moments. That's when I carried you. Now, I do not at all want to discount the very real truth that in some places and sometimes and, and in some situations, the Lord does completely just... Uh, carry us through whatever it is that we're going through. I've experienced that. You've experienced that. However, I think we need to be careful in pointing out that as the only way that the Lord accompanies us through trials. I have experienced far more often the situation where when I'm going through something difficult, I have to go through something difficult. My footprints are very clearly in the sand. And the Lord's footprints are right next to mine, strengthening me, upholding me, sustaining me, teaching me, guiding me. But he will not remove from me this particular trial that I'm going through because 
the way for me to become more like him, to grow and develop a divine quality or attribute, is by going through this very real difficult thing. And if he were to remove me, if he were to lift me up from it and stop me from walking through it, then I wouldn't grow or develop the way that, I, that he would like me to, the way that I'm supposed to. I have come to learn about the Lord that um, even though he does care about results, meaning eternal results, he cares that we make it to the celestial kingdom. He cares that we get to the final destination. He cares at least equally as much about the growth we experience along the way. Probably at least be partially because the growth we experience along the way enables us to live comfortably in the destination that we're heading towards. You cannot separate the destination and the journey with the Lord. And so when we look at comforting verses in Isaiah, notice the Lord doesn't or very rarely promises to completely remove something from us. Rather, these verses, he promises his sustaining, strengthening, and supporting hand to guide us through what we're going through. All right. Let's zoom in just a little bit more, a 60 times magnification. There's another theme repeated in these chapters that I love. This is chapter 42, verse 42. This is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivereth for a spoil, and none saith, Restore. That word restore or its cousin word redeem appear frequently throughout these chapters as well. Chapter 44, verse 42, actually both of them appear in this verse. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me. And even though the English word is different, the Hebrew word is the same as that word restore. For I have redeemed thee. And that word redeem is the famous one that was, uh, remember we read it in Esther, where Boaz promises to be a redeemer. It's the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, your family member that comes in and saves you. And the word restore means to return to uh, prosperity or health or strength. Chapter 49, verse 6, another bookend, same Hebrew word. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. Now, one note on that word that I think is helpful for us to understand. When we talk about restoration in the church, we very frequently talk about God restoring his church. However, that phrase, the restoration of the church or restoring the church, appears nowhere in scripture. According to the scriptural account, God does not restore a church. What he does do is this. Here's just a couple of references. This is 1 Nephi chapter 15, verse 20. Listen to the word restore, but listen to how it's used. And I did rehearse unto them the words of Isaiah, who spake concerning the restoration of the Jews or the house of Israel. 2 Nephi 3.13 And out of weakness he shall be made strong in that day when my work shall commence and all my peop- unto all my people, unto the restoring thee, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. That was Lehi speaking. And then 2 Nephi 9, chapter 
2 and a couple of others. This is Jacob speaking. That he spoke unto the Jews by the mouth of his holy prophets, even from the beginning, down from generation to generation, until the time comes that he shall be, that they shall be restored to the true church and fold of God. Uh, verse 13, uh, we are restored to, a, or the spirit and body are restored to itself again. And verse 26, for the atonement satisfieth the demands of justice upon all those who have not the law given to them, that they are delivered from the awful monster, death and hell and the devil and the lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. And they are restored to that God who gave them breath, which is the Holy One of Israel. Notice, in none of those verses is God restoring an organization. Rather, he restores his people to covenants, to promises, to ordinances, or restores them to the church, but it's not the focus on the organization. Um, what happened or what began with Joseph Smith in 1820 was not the construction or the reconstruction of a church merely for the sake of reestablishing a church. Rather, it was the Lord restoring his people to a covenant relationship with him that allows them to experience to a greater degree his blessings, his revelation, and his efforts to prepare them for eternal life. That's what the restoration was. And of course, a church and temples and policies and meetings and organizations are all necessary for that. But the eye of the Lord was on his people not on the programs or the buildings or the policies. And so as you look through these chapters in Isaiah and look for restoration verses, you might ask yourself, how will the Lord restore or redeem me from my falls or from my fails? Uh, not what is he going to restore that's external to me, but how is he going to restore or redeem me? All right. Final magnification, 120 times. There's a theme repeated, especially in the middle chapters of our study this week, that I want to just, I want to read you these verses so that you can hear the repeated phrase. Uh, I've said this before, there's no punctuation marks in these ancient written languages, and so they emphasize things through repetition. So, chapter 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord. And beside me there is no Savior. Chapter 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Verse 8. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not of any. Chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. Verse 18. Thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it and hath established it. He created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Verse 21, bottom of the verse, there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Verse 22, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And then 46, verse 9, remember the former things of old, 
For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. In other words, Isaiah is emphasizing, re-emphasizing really, the reality that there is one God in heaven, one Lord alone, who is responsible for all of the happenings and doings that Israel has experienced. And if there's a simple way that Isaiah might summarize the story of Israel up to this point, it is this one God who has loved you and cared for you and nourished you, you have repeatedly turned away from him, either outright to other gods or to other sources of perceived strength that have then left you depleted. Whether that has been alliances with foreign powers uh, or alliances with your own strength and a de-emphasis of reliance on God, whatever it has been, uh, the consequences, the trials that you have faced have come because you have not held true to that one God. And to emphasize that, I love this imagery. In chapter 44, Isaiah uses a Hebrew word repeatedly. It's translated as formed or sometimes as made or make or sometimes as form or fashion. And so the first couple of places where he uses this, it is man making God. Chapter 44, verse 11. Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed and the workmen They are men. And then verse 12. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashioneth it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. The carpenter stretched out his rule and marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes and he marketh it out and with a compass and maketh it after a figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. And then in verse 15, he explains what it is that this smith and this carpenter are making. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself, and, and he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it, and maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. He'll reiterate that in verse 17, that man has made God. Uh, Back in verse 9, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Now, I don't know how frequent it is that people today actually worship false gods. But just reflecting on myself, I do know how often it is that I find things that I have made with my own hands, whether those are tangible things or for me more often intangible things, schedules, work priorities, um, other kinds of intangible structures, those take priority over God. How often is it for me that I will be busily involved in project A, B, or C only to realize that nowhere in any of these projects have I considered the Lord, have I prayed to him, have I asked what his priority might be. I am constantly caught in pushing my priorities on God or on others or on my day rather than listening to what his priority might be for me. So I think we can resonate with this. Uh, the gods that we make that we then end up bowing down to and worshiping. Contrast that with the other use of this word that's translated as form or fashion. Very beginning of chapter 42, verse 2, 
Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which helped thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant. O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. Verse 24. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. In other words, we were never meant to make God. We were meant to be made and continue to be made by God. And the point that Isaiah is emphasizing is when we reverse that relationship, we make God instead of God making us, we dangerously um, damage our chances at peace and happiness now and, of course, eternal life to come. Uh, Chapter 45, verse 9, he brings these two points together. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. In other words, we get in trouble when we argue with, when we strive with our maker, when we try and form God in our own image rather than letting God form us in his. And so one question you might ask with this lens is, what reasons does the Lord give me that motivate me to assure there is no God beside him in my life? In other words, how can I turn to God? What would, it, what would he create in me or what would he uh, create around me that can strengthen my relationship with him? And what reasons does he give for me to set him as my top priority? Now, those are just a few different lenses. There are others out there that you can use. Isaiah, of course, is an incredibly deep uh, text. And so there are multiple layers and depths. But these three, comfort, redemption, and one God, can provide ways for you to uh, either go deeper into your study or see things that you otherwise wouldn't see. Thank you so much for studying with me in this episode. One more week of Isaiah coming up next week. So enjoy your study this week. We'll be back one more with one more episode next week, and we'll see you then.